You are listening to Radiant Creators, a collaborative project composed of people whose passion, purpose, and dedication requires forging their own unique path of empowerment and livelihood. A Radiant Creator isn't making a living, they are living. Welcome to Radiant Creators, Jake. We're talking to Jake Richards, who recently wrote a book, Backwoods Witchcraft. We read it, and it's an incredible amount of work, an incredible amount of data about really Appalachian folklore, and also that folklore actually in practice. Um, Jake, Dr. Henny, follows a family practice as a Yarb doctor, a conjure man in the Appalachian folk magic tradition. So that's kind of an introduction into uh, who you are and what you do, but it's a bit etherical, and it's rooted in tradition. I don't know how to really introduce you, so I'll let you tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, Well, I've always lived in East Tennessee, and uh, I don't know that, you know, these practices have always been in my family, Um, you know, starting as far as we know about five or six generations back um on both sides of my family uh as you said my mother's the seventh daughter um so she was always able to she was born with the healing touch so she could always uh, cure different maladies or anything like that simply by uh, touching or rubbing the um wound or afflicted area a certain way and then her father my uh papa was a uh, Baptist preacher, um, a free will Baptist preacher. And he was able to, uh, talk out fire, uh, buy off warts or sometimes even wash off warts with a dish rag. Um, he could take fever out with an egg, stop the flow of blood, uh, among a, a multitude of other things. Um, simply because he was, um, what they called a, a child who had never laid eyes on his father because his father had passed away soon after he was born. So he never actually got to meet his father. Um, and then his wife, my grandmother, she has the site. Um, her mother before her, uh, my mama Siegel, she did this work and always had uh, oil lamps burning and strange things burning on the, on the, on the, uh, old wood stove that she had in her house and um and then her father also we believe did the work because we recently found a photo of him holding a doll um which is you know kind of odd but where nana has alzheimer's now we can't really get any information out of her now about her father um but yeah it just goes you know down the family line or whatever um so that's why I decided to take this practice up and, you know, bring out the practice as it is authentically without any, you know, modern add-ons or anything like that, that steer away from the tradition because the tradition is dying out with, you know, the elders are passing on, times are changing and things like that. Yeah. I really like when we, find things of value that are passing on and it's always a very sad situation because there's many many beautiful things in the world that are important that have deep roots that are wonderful Uh, you could say one is amateur radio sounds odd but 
it really brought forth a lot of interest in electronics and, uh, and, and global communication, but it's an art that's kind of going away. It's even, I even think about things like the Elks Club here in America, you know, and uh, the, the VFW and such like that. Yeah. Really, there just aren't many old people left to, to do it, and young people are not really entering that. There's not such an interest in the VFW as there used to be at the Elks Club. And so, you know, you go in there and everybody's on oxygen tanks. There's a couple old people. And there's maybe a few young ones, but definitely it's changing. It, it, it's passing on. And so, but we never really know what's going to happen. Uh, exactly. Because, and so it's so great to keep these traditions alive <laughs> and to keep things alive. Because I think about um, amateur radio of all things. It seemed like it, it, it's, it's been a dying art. It's been a dying hobby. Uh, dying knowledge for gosh quite a while but you know recently it's been it's getting a resurgence because of preppers you know it wasn't even five years ago you wouldn't have seen all the prepper books in just safeway you know uh, uh, prepper magazines like recoil magazine and off the grid and things like that well that's actually creating a resurgence in amateur radio and so maybe it's not dead Maybe it's going to pick up again. So I love that you're doing this work and that you took the time to study this and that you're keeping it alive and you're documenting it because it appears that it's fading away, but we don't really know. And you'll and, and you'll have created a foundation of work that the future can read, can look at to continue this. And so that's really important. How, how has life been since you got the book out? It's fairly new, I believe, uh, as far as its release. And uh, what kind of feedback have you gotten so far? I've gotten a lot of good feedback. Um, and life's just been, you know, pretty much the same. Um, aside from the hectic scheduling of interviews. Yeah. Like trying to get them all scheduled and not try to, you know, overlap them or anything like that. Oh, I get it. Well, we're definitely thankful to be able to harass you for a little bit. And because uh, you're working full time and you're also uh, doing your your uh, folk magic work, basically. So uh, are you still are you, how's the balance going? Uh, between work and my business? Yeah, work in your business. Um, pretty good. Um, you know, having a day job doesn't really affect the, like the work that I do for clients too much. Um, cause the majority of my work I do in the evenings. That makes sense. Well, I'm, I'm looking at your, there was, there was a review of your book by over at pathos.com. Mm-hmm. And I like one. I like something that the person said. He said, "The folklore and superstitions of Irish and Scottish immigrants and Native American spirits are introduced in stories and folk tales told by the people that live here. The mountains are home to several spirits that Richards describes in detail, from haints, ghosts or demons, to animal spirits, to the little people of the indigenous tribes, and." Since I have some Appalachians in my family, when they heard haint, they kind of came to life. 
and they mm-hmm. went, and they went. I haven't heard that for a long time since they, yeah. uh, you know, moved from that area. So can can you? I'd like to. Can you describe a uh, haint and what life is like with haints and and how <laughs> the Appalachian people, you know, what is their relationships to haint in daily life? Mm-hmm. Well, haints are essentially just uh, double the people in your life. Basically, there are some good ones, and then there's some that you know you just can't stand. Um, haints can obviously, as you said, include, you know, what the religious here would deem as demons, but it can also include, um, you know, lost souls, souls that don't know they're dead, souls that don't know they're causing problems. Um, and then you have, you know, the spirits that do know that they're causing problems, the spirits that do, um, essentially seek out attention. And those are usually the spirits of, um, people who either you know died alone a long time ago or whatever like that. Um, so you know they have their graves haven't been tended to. They haven't really got much of attention. Um, so essentially, bothering us is entertainment for them. Um, I recently, I think yeah, just this past weekend, I went up into Lee County, Virginia, to help this old woman with a haunting. Uh, her grandkids lived with her, and. The, there was some kind of spirit, haint, boo hag. We're not exactly sure what it was, essentially, because the activity of it was all over the place. But a, a large sinkhole had appeared on the property about, I'd say it was about 10 feet in diameter and maybe 20 feet deep. Uh, but the spirit, or according to the little kids, the spirit would come and either pinch their toes until they bled or the one of the kids would sleepwalk and almost, you know, basically be led to the sinkhole. Um, so yeah, the, the relationship between, uh, Appalachian Americans and, you know, the spirits that reside around us depend uh, essentially on, you know, the, the basis of the relationship, how it's formed, where that spirit comes from, what its intentions are, um, and things of that nature. And then, you mentioned little people, and I think most people, they're, they're going to understand animal spirits, the, the notion of that, but by little people. So what are little people? Uh, well, the little people here are you know, essentially the same as they are all across the globe. Um, it is a belief that in a, you know, a race of small humanoid spiritual beings that reside in the trees or the hills or the rocks and, or even under the creeks, um, for the Cherokee, it was the, um, I believe the pronunciation is uh, Yonwi Junsti, or Junsti, um, which essentially means little people. But they also had uh, another distinct um, race of spirit people called the Nunehi, which essentially means they live everywhere or they live forever. Those were like um, spiritual warriors, and they would come during... Uh, times of trial, there are also stories where the Nuna, he appeared to the Cherokee before the uh, Indian Removal Act was enacted, telling them, you know, come with us and you can live in our realm forever. Some of them went, but some of them decided to stay and, you know, fight for their homeland. Um, But the actual little people were described as being about two feet tall with long black hair and olive skin like the Cherokee. 
and look just like the Cherokee in dress and everything, except for their music and the way they spoke. They seem to have had their own uh, certain Indian language. Um, and the Cherokee distin- distinguished them into three clans, which was the Laurel Clan, the Rock Clan, and the... Oh, what was the third one? It was the Rock Clan, Dogwood Clan. That's the third one. Um, and they were essentially uh, distinguished based upon their temperaments toward people. Some of them were you know, just mean and straight-out nasty, while some were just playful and... Then others just didn't really mind, um, you know, people, or they would, you know, help like lo- pe- uh, people who got lost in the woods, or people who, you know, needed help, needed healing, or anything like that. I get it. That and that and that folklore, that that history, um, that's pretty remarkable, and that's. And then how long would that have been around? So that comes from, I think you mentioned the, which tribe was that? That they? Uh, the Cherokee. The Cherokee. And so that would go back to what, the 17, at least in, in the history that we're thinking of, um, mm-hmm. like, like like the 1750s or easily that. Yeah, I believe the first stories started being recorded in, yeah, about the 1750s, 1780s. That would make sense because that was about mm-hmm. the time that we were interacting uh, the earliest time. Yeah. Um, well, in your book, there's an, something that really struck me. It's page 42, and you just called it Honest Work. And it leads in a couple things I wanted to, uh, you know, just touch about, touch on. And this section goes, it, I think it's one of the best parts of the book. And you said, you know, so be honest in this work with yourself and the spirits. Go to the fields and forests. Go treasure hunting. Go put your feet in the water and listen to the wind chimes as the minnows nibble at your toes. Till the soil, align the rows, sift the stones from the dirt and plant the seeds. Over time, you will know the land and it will know you. It may take a while, but I can say for sure, as I've been stomping through creeks and woods my whole life, your bones will root themselves in the soil eventually. Just be honest and curious about it all. The best things are found through curiosity. Coincidentally, these are the same things that are cherished for a lifetime. And, wow, where did that come from? That, that is quite... For, for anybody who likes, let's say, Sand County Almanac, uh, Almanac by... Uh, uh, Aldo Leopold. I mean, that kind of sums that the book that he wrote up. I mean, like, how long did it take to create that? Where, where were you at when you made that <laughs> amazing paragraph? <laughs> um, well, it's. I mean, I've I've always had that, you know, feeling in regard for life, um, and I have my my elders to thank for that because growing up, especially uh, whenever I would spend some time in the summer over on. Uh, in the mountains of North Carolina at my mama Hobson's house. Uh, I would continuously be, you know, hiking up the mountains or playing in the creek or whatever like that. And I would be continuously be bringing in, like, bugs and rocks and sticks and all kinds of things like that. And, you know, uh, Mama and her daughter, my nana, they would just call them treasures. So that was kind of like the mindset that um, I was taught, and I still do that to this day. 
Oh, and you call them it's treasures. To, I love that. You call, yeah. well, you call them treasures, and that's really important. You went and found treasures. And, you know, when you sit in nature, when you're in nature, and you watch a bird find a cool stick that it's going to use for its nest, you can go, oh, look, it's got a treasure. And to that bird, it really is. And, um, yeah, I love it. It's just a, a knowledge, a respect for, and an appreciation, and a witnessing of life. Like, you know, recently I saw... You know, I, I love antelopes. I just do. Don't know what it is about them. I love the speed goats. They're just the most majestic, beautiful things. And I'd never seen a baby one. And there, there was one that couldn't have been a week old. And it was standing next to his mother. And it just looked like a little, like, doll. Like a little mini antelope. <laughs> and it, and I just thought, wow, there's, like, there's a treasure. And the fact that I got to see it was a blessing. You know, and you start to, you start to feel blessed by what you see. You know, like it really is a gift to you, like it is a treasure. Well, you said over time you will know the land and it will know you. And you mentioned that your your bones will root themselves in the soil eventually. And that makes me think of something I want to ask is a sense of place. Is that essential? Like you've lived where you live for a while, like your whole life. But many people have moved around a lot. Maybe they're not really living anywhere close to home. Maybe they wouldn't even know where home would be. I mean, how essential is that place? Like, we seem to need a, a, a home, a place. Like, you're, you're living where you've lived. You have a sense of place, and you've had time to get to know it. You know the nature there, etc. I mean, how, how important do you think place is for uh, an individual's, you know, uh, health, body, mind, and spiritually? Well, um, it, it takes on kind of a different context, especially in Appalachia, because a lot of the uh, the majority of the people here, you know, they've been in these mountains for, you know, hundreds of years. And oftentimes it's, you know, involuntary. Because um, a lot of people want to leave, and no matter how much they want to leave, they either just can't, or they, you know, always end up coming back home. Um, and you know, it's just like a these mountains give you like a sense of security. Like the first time I ever went out west anywhere was simply to Nashville, Tennessee, and I swear all of that flat land scared me to death. I didn't know I didn't see a mountain, I didn't see a hill. I was like, I don't, I don't feel safe here, <laughs> which uh, is not only, you know, that the mountains protect us from bad weather and tornadoes and all of that stuff. But I think there's a, a deeper um, spiritual sense of the land itself that grows over time in the community. Um, because in Appalachia, Appalachia was, you know, abandoned for, you know, the majority of America's history. And it's only recently being, you know, recognized as a as a region of its own, as a culture of its own, um, to the point to where, you know, we the Appalachian tried capitalizing on that. So and still to to this day, tourism is our um the, the biggest market in our our economy. Like you can just take one good look at uh Gatlinburg, Tennessee, and that that'll tell you all you need. Um but, you know, being in isolation all that long and uh, in these small-knit communities and uh, whether it was in the valley or between the mountains or whatever like that, um, really all you had was, you know, your neighbors, your family, and God um, and, you know, the land that you, that you tilled. Um, 
it's it's hard to put into words. Um, I I get what you're saying though. Uh, it does seem like a sense of place of home is essential. Uh, we, we we have a connection to a land um, if we have spent time there. Uh, I've oftentimes thought about accents. You know, w- what creates an accent? And I've often thought that, that, like, the land does, a place sort of influences and creates the accent. It's almost like you know, those mountains created that accent, you know, because somehow the, the land and the people, they're not separate. And so they, they, they affect each other. Exactly. I also often think about how the mountain and the mountaineer aren't really dominant or subdued by the other. Um, the mountain couldn't really, you know, tame us or conquer us, but we also could not really tame the mountain or conquer the mountain. So it's uh, it's more like we live in a mutual respect with the region and the environment. Um, you know, to the point to where if there's, you know, a bear running, running around in the city, you know, everybody will, you know, take notice and try not to hurt it and try and do, do their best to get it back home you know, up in the mountains. Um, I don't know. I think, and especially with Christianity being a, in Appalachia being a different flavor than the rest of the world, I think there is a little bit of uh, animistic quality to it, to, you know, being connected with the land itself, um, as well as, you know, in connecting with God, which can be seen in many of the, hymns that originated out of Appalachia, whether it's talking about climbing a mountain or, you know, going through a valley, going down to the water to pray. Um, so yeah, the, the land has affected us in a lot of, a lot of different ways that can't really be described in, in, in words per se as to how, you know, exactly important it is, especially when the land has been, um, you know, shaping and sculpting a people for, you know, hundreds of years, and even the people before us, the Cherokee and the the Indians before them for thousands of, of years, literally. And it's really a gift to be aware of one's environment. I mean, people are living existences where they're, uh, they eat food that is bad for their body. They're not really in touch with their body, and therefore they're not really in touch with the land either. They don't, they don't, they don't experience it. You know, uh, exactly, and that's why I often think about when people, you know, litter in nature. Uh, you know, they, they throw their garbage off the side of the road. I think to myself, well, I resent it, but I also realize that person sees their own body as a garbage dump. There's just, you know, if if nature is not sacred, then the body is not sacred. You know, so to grow up in a place like that, that uh, maybe just by being there, you feel sacred. You know, just because the place has a lot of energy. Um, well, when I think about place, I mean, I, I grew up. And I, grew, I grew up in the West Coast, East Coast, and that was in Delaware, and and it was right there in the Delaware PA, PA border. So I was used to like woods and you know, old growth forests, and it was really something. I loved it. And I lived in Seattle area in Washington for a, a good number of years, and some other places. But now I'm living in the Arizona desert, and it, it's tough because you go, man. This is this does not feel like where my bone marrow belongs. <laughs> oh yes, I've been to Arizona. I hated every minute of it. 
<laughs> yeah. Last well, time I went through Phoenix, Arizona, I think it was 120 degrees, and I could not for the life of me figure out who decided to camp out there and then just turn it into a city. Oh, it always gets me because, you know, Arizona's <laughs> been here for a while, and there's wagon trains that go across it, etc., and you can go out to old, old stagecoach stops and things like that, and, yeah. you know, it's got a lot of nothing in it. Which is which is which is actually something. I mean, the, those spots in the yeah. map where there is nothing, it, th- those are not undeveloped. Those are <coughs> sacred. Those are important, you know. Um, and then you get you go. Uh, Nevada's got a lot of it too. I mean, you can get out in the desert to where you can look in every direction. There's nothing but desert, and that's a beautiful thing, and it's important. But it's also kind of terrifying to me because it's like. Uh, you're talking about you didn't like it where it was flat. You know, I, I'm used to there being forests and trees, and you walk 10 yards into the forest, and you don't even know which way you came from. You're lost. You know, hope you got a compass. Yeah. And uh, here you have desert, and it's really, it's, it's unique. You're like, it's so hot. And I can't imagine, see, now we have a car, and you've got air conditioning in the car and such. I'm like, I think to myself, people were tougher back in the day. You mean you rode a horse? Across this, <laughs> right? Everything wants to stab you. It's hot. I mean, it's really hot. There's no water. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's not even humidity. I mean, it's crazy. But I, but I also love it. It's weird because that's the thing. Then, then you have to. Then coming here, I think about creating a relationship to the land that relationship you get with your environment with the land and I don't want to be adversarial to it you know it's very truthful it's very powerful it strips away all things that are not essential this is really uh, an incredible place to live I don't think we'll live here forever but for the moment that we do uh, for the moment we do and it's almost like as you get older and wiser and you think about relationships you realize, wow, the older and wiser you get, the more there is to you. When you enter a new relationship, you think, wow, this is a, there's a lot to do to actually establish entwinement with somebody. You know, it's easy when you're young. The older you get, it just gets more complex. There's more to it, you know? Yeah. And, you, and now I come to this new land and I go, oh, my gosh. You know, so me and Arizona, we're, we're starting to get a good relationship. You know, we're, we're starting to entwine. We're starting to... You know, really have a, 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 a mutual interest in one another, but it is it is it it's very shocking when you know. I think I'm more of an ice age hunter than <laughs> a desert dweller, <laughs> but it's important to cultivate that. Well, what do you think about people going on pilgrimages to where they're from? Like, I know that. There's 23andMe and other services, and they kind of and they look at your DNA and they kind of tell you that you're from everywhere. And I'm not necessarily sure I truly believe that. Um, I think there might be an agenda behind that. I think you, at least in recent generations, are probably from somewhere. And yeah, I, I just like for me, I know that I'm pretty much Scandinavian. Um, not completely, but, but but mostly. So if it's 50 degrees, drizzly, no sun, kind of windy, I'm I'm almost in short sleeves and I'm loving it. You know, <laughs> I'm like, yes, this is wonderful. Then you put me in Arizona and I'm like, what is this? <laughs> Did someone open the gates of hell? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's insane. Humans can't live here. But what do you think of a person? Let's say they're from Ireland, or they are from Scandinavia, or Germany, or they're from Australia. Like they know there are some roots. They they know there is a place their family came from. What do you think of the of 
pilgrimages back to those places to see where your bone marrow came from. Oh, definitely. Yeah, I, 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 you know, that I, I think that is really important. Um, to because it's a totally different thing to uh, try and relate to your, you know, ancestors and uh, passed on elders simply through stories. It's a total another thing to actually, you know, be on the grounds that they walked on or um, be in the environment that they lived in or anything like that. It kind of brings a, a a sense of reality to, you know, every other layer that you know about them. Yeah, there's a place, there's something to actually going back to where they walked around, where they were, that gets you in touch with something in yourself. Yeah, because they're they're a part of you. So I, I love the idea of you know pilgrimage going and going back to where you're where you're from, it, it, or at least where you were from recently, as far as you can tell. It's it, it's it, yeah. it's interesting. Um, and here's one I I didn't have notes to ask about it, but since we were asking about haints and little people. Um, and I say this actually very seriously. I'm not like asking a weird question, but Bigfoot, you know, because I've had encounters with, uh, with Bigfoot, you know, up close, personal, you know, I've seen it. We've looked at each other. And so from the folklore perspective, you know, from the work that you're doing, your study, um, who is it? What is it? That I haven't really put much thought into. And that's fine too. Yeah, you know, I mean, I believe there. I, I believe Big, Bigfoot exists because I mean, it is it is a high possibility? Because I mean, we discover new species every single day, um, and I kind of think like like the reason why no bodies of them have been found is I think because if they're smart enough to stay away from us, they could have also either learned from us or done something similar to us. Like maybe they bury their dead. Um, if that, does that make sense? Oh, it makes sense. It's, it's like we all find ungulate skeletons, as they say, um, but we don't tend to find predator uh, skeletons. And it's mainly because predators go off into the woods. They sort of kind of go off into the depths of, of, of nature to die. Um, so it just tends to be a habit that they have. And so, like, most people have never seen a mountain lion skeleton or a bear skeleton, you know. It's, yeah. it is a, it, it is a uh, pretty rare thing. And uh, so, yeah, not finding the remains would not surprise me, especially if they were a community of intelligent, you know, beings. Then maybe they would just say, well, let's not leave, you know, skeletons laying around or candy bar wrappers, you know. We don't want people to, to get the lowdown on where we are. Yeah. Yeah. Well... Since you mentioned uh, uh, God, one thing I really liked in, in, in your book is all the biblical verses. And, and you mentioned there's like a certain version of Christianity there. And uh, I like it. And something that really struck me in the book was the beginning of the book. Well, actually, a lot of, a lot of parts. But I want to read this one little, little thing here. Where, this is I found this on Amazon or on, uh, about your book. Uh, the Bible is more than a book. The Bible is much more than a book in Appalachia. It is heritage and an extension of the family. Oftentimes, family Bibles held the only records for births, marriages, and deaths, among other important life events. It also served as a charm protecting against haints and nightmares if placed under the mattress. 
So I'm definitely going to put a, night, a Bible under the mattress. It's a good idea. Um, <laughs> uh, so can you explain that? What 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 is this beautiful relationship to the Bible and this, this unique version of Christianity that you have there? Because it's different. Mm-hmm. Um, well, with the you know, early settlers, they obviously came over with their religious beliefs. Um, but then over time, a, a spirit of kind of like a, a spirit of independence uh, grew in the southern Appalachian region. And this independence applies to just about every aspect of our culture, um, especially in our religion. Because uh, back in the day... Um, you know, people had to, you know, do without a preacher or anything like that. So there was never like a like a level or a hierarchy built that you had to like stepping stones in order to talk to God. Um, growing up, I was always taught that, you know, a person could get saved um, just as good as the, as if they were sitting in a pew simply by, you know, sitting on the toilet talking to God. So there was no in Appalachia, there's there's no barrier essentially between you or the creator. Um, just like, um, my great, oh shit, how many greats? My, I think three or four times great grandfather. Um, his name was Sidney and he was a circuit rider. Uh, circuit rider was essentially a preacher who would travel around, um, a certain area, usually ranging at about, you know, usually about a hundred mile radius, take a, you know, few day travel. And he would stop in each community and stay there for a couple of weeks and, you know, preach the gospel to them, do baptisms, marriages, whatever. Um, but then after he left, after the preacher leaves, that doesn't mean that, you know, the conversations with God stop. Um, No, it makes sense. I like that that, that that there's no you know barrier between you and God, and I think it it kind of feels like there's no barrier between you and nature, you and your family. You know, it it just seems like a very uh, organic and sacred life where you're kind of like it, it's almost like you're driving down the road uh, through the woods, and every telephone pole is like an altar. <laughs> I mean, that's, yeah. that's really how it feels, you know, from from your writing. You know, and I think that 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 I just call it sacredness, that aliveness to our environment, and uh, and and our place in it, uh, is something that's really uh, lacking in in our world today. And I think one of the important things about your book, you know, Backwoods Witchcraft, is that even if a person doesn't, maybe they don't have interest in in, in folk magic of of Appalachia, maybe that's not really an interest to them. I would say. A life the way that you that that it is lived there seems like it would be an interest to many people who just want to feel more alive and not disconnected from themselves and their environment. Yeah. And your Nana, who you talk about some in the book, and I and I really like it as we get into you know talk about like Christianity and the Bible there and the way it's unique. I like how in one section called Barefoot Wandering. Uh, I think it's page 40, you mentioned that before making any kind of remedy, Nana always made sure the Lord was involved through reciting either of these two psalms. Do you remember what those are? Uh, I don't remember the exact verses, but it's the, um, 
Yeah, I was never good with verses. <laughs> That's fine. I'm good with the actual words, but I can't tell you what you know, book or chapter or whatever. Gotcha. Uh, the, yeah, words but, are good enough. <laughs> uh, uh, the Lord heard me cry unto him. I might be getting them mixed up. Uh, oh, it's and fine. he answered unto me. Lord, yeah. I cried unto the Lord, and he has healed me. Yeah. So, yeah, it, it was, um, Oh, Lord, my God, I cried unto thee, and thou hast healed me. You know, Psalm 32. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, or 30 dash two and then the other one was i waited patiently for the lord and he included onto me and heard me cry no i'm sorry i patiently i waited patiently for the lord and he inclined onto me and heard my cry uh psalm 40 psalm 40 dash one so yeah and then also nana comes up again and you said uh, she often and this was um I forget which page, but she meant you mentioned that Nana often recited John six dash fifty when breaking bread. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. And so, I mean, you you grew up in a world full of people who were just they were living this 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 sacred experience. I mean, how how that affect you as a as a child being around that? Um. Well, before I started delving into it, I didn't really you know, think anything of it. Um, cause you know, growing up, I was always hearing, you know, Bible verse, Bible verses being recited or anything like that. Um, so di- it didn't really, you know, stick out like a sore thumb to me until I was about, I think about 10 or 11 years old. Um, once, you know, I started making the connections or whatever. Um, but yeah, with those uh, two first verse, verses, um, we, we don't always really say them like cut and dry. Sometimes they are melded together or whatever, so that's why I've never really you know, put much emphasis on remembering them exactly. Um, and that's done with a lot of Bible verses, um, especially with the folk aspects of Christianity. There's a lot of things that a lot of people believe, like still to this day believe wholeheartedly is in the Bible, but it's actually not. Like my grand, my Nana Trivet, she still believes that. What was it? That a that in the end times a griffin will fly in the sky. But I've read Revelations multiple times, and I, I have never found anything about a griffin. Um, so again, that could be you know just like a a corruption of, um, what is it? The it's like the the angels that sit around the throne of God with the heads of beasts or eagles or something like that. Um, because, you know, back in the day, a lot of people were illiterate. So, you know, thing, things that were in the Bible would get spread around and twisted, kind of like a game of gossip, if that makes any sense. It makes sense. Yeah, so it's, it seems to be, uh, I don't know, it's like an Appalachian tradition of corrupting things. Whether it's words or doctrines or uh, whatever it is, I like it. I like it. Well, that's the thing. It's really the intent. It's what's meant that's important. And sometimes, you know, a little slang or rewriting it gets across the meaning better. You know, exactly. God knows what you mean. Yeah, God knows what you mean. (laughs) God talks just 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 like you. Oh, I like that. Yeah, it's true. And I love that ideal of, you know, you can, uh, 
you have that one-to-one relationship. You got, and that's the thing. I, I dig that. It, it's so you really seem to have grown up in a living like in this sacred place, living like a sacred life with you know nanas that were doing biblical quotes while they're making bread, and that leads me to stump stump water. <laughs> <laughs> Since I have some real Appalachians in the family, um, they were just amazed by stump water. So, um, could you tell us a little bit about stump water? Because at least for the Appalachian people that I know, which is just two that are from there directly, um, it's an important thing. It's a big deal. <laughs> yeah, um, it. Uh- as far as I can tell, it originally derives from the uh, Cherokee uh, people and their form of medicine. Uh, they regarded stump water with such, um, you know, sacredness because it was water that had felt that had fallen from heaven but had not yet touched the soil. So it was believed to still contain um, uh, essentially the spirits of heaven or the you know energies of the heavens. Um, so it was used for multiple, you know, multiple purposes. Whether it was washing off uh, freckles, um, washing the hair, washing off warts, um, all sorts of different things for you know health and beauty and things of that nature. Yeah, and I mean, who doesn't? It's funny if you if you've if you've been out in the forest and you come across a stump. Um, it's a magical thing. Then also, I mean, if it's got stump water in it, well, now you know to you know gather a little bit of that. But even even the gathering of that would be a process. You wouldn't just go and stick a cup in it, right? Oh no, there's as far as I can tell, you know, from folkloric writings and from what I've heard, um, it's never supposed to be bottled. Um, but you're supposed to go about it certain ways. There's different variations based on you know where you're from. You know, whether it's Kentucky, East Tennessee, North Carolina, Virginia. Um, but many of them talk about, you know, you have to use it on a full moon or you have to use it as the full moon is rising and the sun is setting. You have to walk to it backwards without speaking to anyone uh, from the time you leave your house until you come back home. Um, so there's a, there's a lot of different uh, variations that uh, grew up around that particular um, curio or remedy. Gotcha. So, like, what are some of the things uh, that you've done with with, uh, stump water? Have you done any remedies recently that uh, where that was a part of it? Um, I haven't uh, personally. Um, I have, you know, found it in, you know, nature and stuff. But never at, you know, the right time to wash a ward off or anything like that. Um, I just always seem to run across it at the wrong damn time. Um, I think I've only found, I'd say about two or three stumps that are, you know, just perfect enough to actually catch the water and contain it after a rainstorm. Sometimes it'll, you know, stumps will fill up. Uh, with the water during the rain, but then after the rain, the water just kind of seeps through, you know, into the wood. So it's a, I don't know, it just has to be conditioned uh, just right to, you know, hold and contain the water um, in, you know, a puddle big enough to, you know, even wash your hands or, you know, wash a bit of your hair with it. 
I like it. Um, you have a chapter in the book. It's chapter three, I believe, and it's called Barefoot Wandering, Connecting with the Land. And even though you have a chapter in the book about it, which does describe it, I'd like to ask just how would you define barefoot wandering, connecting with the land? How does a person do that? Of course, they're going to get your book, everybody. Buy Jake's book. But while you're waiting for it to get there, um, <laughs> and you can read chapter three you know, for yourself, could you explain chapter three to us a little bit? Um, chapter three, essentially. Um, barefoot wandering. Yeah, because as, as far as I've known and experienced in doing this work, the land does play a you know a large factor in the work. Whether it's simply knowing the items and herbs and animals that live on the land with you, or if it's you know simply the spirits of the land that reside there, um, building and creating those relationships can you know, in the long run, um, you know, be very beneficial. Um, now, you know, actual, you know, land spirits or, uh, Jenny Loki as they're called in the, you know, modern occult world. Um, and Appalachia, those can be, it's, you know, the, the spirit of an animal or somebody's ghost or it could simply be the uh, how would you term it the residual uh, energies of a place, uh, just like if I mentioned in the book about you know a bridge that's known for suicides, it itself would have a particular feel or spirit about it. Um, especially with you know living on a piece of land that has you know been there for you know, generations, many, many lives and deaths have taken place on that land. Um, creating that mutual respect and that relationship can uh, benefit you in certain ways. <laughs> uh, just like uh, one of my friends, they live up in uh, Boone's Creek. Uh, she lives in a house that was built, I believe her neighbor said, in 1903. It was in the very early 1900s. But, uh, the man who built it, for some reason, he only lived there for three days before he decapitated himself in the attic. And the the bottle of liquor that he was drinking is still up there. Um, and even before that, that piece of land was a part of the Civil War. And just across the street, um, there's 13 uh, graves for, like, of old uh, Civil War soldiers. Um, and then there was... Uh, after that, most recently, I think she said in the 1980s, there was a couple that had moved into the house. This is what my what her neighbor had told me because her neighbor's been living there for decades now, uh, right next door to that house. Um, said that a that a young couple had moved into the house, and it was a a woman and her husband, and her husband was in the army, and they had about, I think she said 20 dogs and some cats and some goats and pigs or whatnot. And they kept all the dogs out in a, like in a big pen next to the house. Well, uh, while the husband was away, you know, off at war or what, or whatnot. Um, well, he came home and found his wife cheating on him. So he left her. Well, she apparently got real depressed and bitter and mean and 
she just, you know, started neglecting all the dogs and she'd only toss out a loaf of bread every week for them. Um, and that, uh, the neighbor, uh, my friend Pam, so that she would go over and try and, you know, feed them, uh, you know, pieces of hamburger meat or whatever, anything of actual sustenance besides, you know, just bread. Um, well, one day the dogs apparently got so hungry that they not only started eating them set, like eating each other, but two of the dogs, I think she said they were Great Danes or some kind of other big dog, uh, somehow broke out of the pen and got into the barn and ate the uh, goats and chickens alive. And uh, my friend Jen, the one who lives in that same house now, um, said that Pam originally told her that story when she was in the barn one day and she heard a, a huge growl behind her, but there was nothing else in the barn. So now whether or not, you know, the spirits of those dogs still reside on the land, we don't, we don't think that they do. Um, we think it's more of like a like an echo through time, if that makes sense. Due to no, the, it makes sense, know, yeah. Whether traumatic or, you know, just very violent act that occurred on the land. It's like a it's like a memory burp from the land itself. No, it makes sense. It certainly does. So, you know, Understanding what you know, history has gone on the, on in the land, um, I think is a good place to start in you know understanding what occurred on the dirt that you're standing on, um, and it will also give you an idea of the kind of spirits that could possibly reside there, um, and you know leads you further into building those relationships with them. I like it. It reminds me of. Uh, as odd as it sounds, metal detecting. You know, the, metal detecting is a very fun hobby, and people go to areas that are old, you know, that, that have been there for a while, and they start, you know, using their little metal detectors, and they find the, the, the land, like they, they, they find the history. You know, so there's a certain fun in uh, searching for that history. And, uh, like, I think about here in Arizona, if you go to any landmarks any you know some uh, relics of any kind out in the desert you just get this feeling of sparseness of yeah well it's usually really hot but you get this feeling of uh, aloneness it's like you're uh, in the middle of an ocean but it's not kind like an ocean is it's just you're in the middle you look at this feeling so i know what you mean uh i mean i felt it in the Pacific Northwest where I lived, you feel, you know, power and you feel the history and you can be driven to sort of study that history and find out what happened there. Um, but even if you're walking old logging roads that are growing over in the Pacific Northwest, you feel like you feel the history of the logging, you know, you, you feel it. So yeah, I think it's important that people, that people do that, you know, um, I haven't gotten as much as I'd like to check out many of the relics that are in the desert here of Arizona, but there are many. And uh, when you do see them, I always am just amazed that, you know, people lived here. <laughs> you know, like, people lived here. And, like, they made right. this structure. Like, they lived at rocks, and they... <laughs> And they put this here. Oh, and oh yeah, there are some. There's some very well preserved. They they've been excavated. Uh, Indian 
uh, ruins, you know, of, of earlier cultures. And you just think like there's all, all the rooms are square. Then this one room in the middle that faces the east is round. And everybody has many, like, uh, a lot of conjecture as to, well, why was this one round? The rest were not. What did it mean? And I think to myself, at least what I did, is, well, why don't you sit in it? You know, why don't you spend some time in there? And it'll tell you what it was done for. And I, I sat in there and just faced east where the, where the, where the door is open. Um, you're allowed to crawl in there if you want. And... I don't know what it what happened there. I don't know what it was for, but I guess I would say it told me. I need to spend more time to really know for sure, but somehow I could feel what it was for, you know? Um, yeah. Yeah. And so there's a a section in your book called Stolen Flowers, Tools and Supplies. And I like this. It starts out with um I'll just read it. It says, uh, the one thing I remember about my... Because this is very charming, and this is really powerful. And I like how uh, you know, a, a life surrounded by this deep lore, this deep knowledge, you know, to, to, to grow up in this and also to, to continue cultivating it through one's life is amazing. I, I love stuff like this. And I find it to be true, even if I don't understand it. I just get it. Uh, you mentioned... Uh, the one thing I remember about my Nana Trivet's kitchen is the flowers she kept. They were never given to her or bought. They were stolen. She'd pick a rose from a neighbor's bush down the road and bring it home to root or pluck a stem from a plant at a garden center. She always said stolen flowers grow best, although she loved flowers of any kind. But she will never thank you for them or they'll die. Stolen flowers bring love and luck to the household, symbolizing the simple beliefs that keep the family going. Um, and that's amazing. So, like, you're, you're not a trivet, appreciated flowers, but if you gave her flowers, she wouldn't thank you because they would die? <laughs> yeah, she would always just either say, oh, Lord, what would she say? She'd always say either... Um, I'll take good care of it, or um, she said something else. What was it? Is that, or she just changed the, changed the subject, um, or she just mentioned what she's going to do with it? Like I'll just put them in this vase here, or you know something like that. Um, and I swear, every every plant that I've ever bought from a garden center, and I've accidentally said thank you, it dies. <laughs> well, I like this. Now we know. Now we know. <laughs> When you're, you know, when you're, when yeah, you're at, when you're especially at, when you're buying it from a place, I got to get all awkward and be like, thank you for your customer service. That way it's, you know, specified. And then they just look at me where I'm like, don't look at me like that. I want, I want, I want to keep this plan alive. Yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah. You can, when, when, yeah, I, I agree. You got to figure some way to avoid, you got to be like, don't say thank you. Don't thank him for it. Don't thank him for it. You know? If it comes up, yeah. I'll just say it's a beautiful plant going to a good home or something. You know, yeah. I can't I can't thank him. I like that. It's strangely powerful, but it reminds me that this whole uh, section, stolen flowers, tools, and supplies, and the way you start like that, it reminds me of a Russian saying. And the person who was telling me the saying, they they said it doesn't exactly translate into English 
in, in, in any perfect way because it's just Russian is a different language. This is, but 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 the closest way to you know translate this saying would be, it grows better if you steal a little. Uh, and so oh. I guess I, I guess in Russia where they were from, they're all ruthless, like they all <laughs> they all steal from each other as far as plants because you would never buy it. It won't grow well if you buy it. You got to steal it from a neighbor. So it's this kind of game they play. Like so, if you see like your neighbor in your backyard, like you know. <laughs> grabbing something it's just you kind of gotta let them do it because it you gotta steal it it's the only way it's gonna grow well (laughs) i never heard of that before oh it's true and then you think like where does that come from you know it's like i think we just have to it's strange because i think you can feel it like where does it come from i don't know why that room is round but i can sit in it and i know but i can't describe it you know why should i not thank anybody for a plant i i can't exactly describe it i don't know where that comes from but i know i shouldn't and i (laughs) and you know it's like oh these things it but it makes life fun you know um and also a way of uh of living that I see comes across in your book. It's, you, you call the section like honest work. And that's one, um, I think you were, you, you were re, uh, you're talking about um, doing the work that you mentioned in the book of folklore. And I think of, you know, barefoot wandering, like, like the, the, the type of life you're describing. Yeah, I think you were really referencing, you're saying honest work. You, you were saying like live honestly. Um, on very many levels and I'll just read it real quick this little section you said honest work you will never be able to build relationships through books or other people alone your connection to the land under your feet resides in your blood the blood that runs through my veins is raced through those of my ancestors as they tilled the soil and pushed the plow the power of relationships in Appalachia is built through honest work and good food it's built with family and love and it's an, an integral part of our culture. And I thought that was just a great section. It's, it, it's, it's a section in Barefoot Wandering, actually. And you called it honest work. So it just seems like really honest life. It seems like li- living in a way that, you know, brings life, that promotes harmony with nature and family and such. Um, I know that, like, modern society seems a bit off track and not doing that. Would you say that's true that we're that in general we're we're not doing that? Oh, exactly, and that is that's one of the reasons why I included that portion in the book, um, because you know it's so easy to get swept up in today's world and you know essentially forget where you come from. You forget your roots, or you know, as the locals would say, you get too big for your britches. Um, but, I don't know. You just you, you have to remember where you come from because it's it's a part of your story, um, and with with the people of Appalachia, it's a part of you know our communal and historical story, because um, you know we were we were left on our own. So and that is what birthed the, birthed that same uh, spirit of independence is. You know we had to rely on ourselves and our communities, and the real meaning behind honest work is you know. Don't screw me over. I won't screw you over. Or you know, leave me be. I'll leave you be. Um, but that that also applies, you know, internally. You know, be honest with yourself. Um, 
you know, don't kid yourself. And it, it's a sad reality in Appalachia that, you know, folks don't really have uh, a lot of high expectations out of life, especially growing up. Um, for the for a lot of communities, uh, what has been done is, you know, what will always have to be done, um, no matter how, you know, much, you know, how much aid people try to bring us or anything like that. Um, you know, because for hundreds of years, we've just all been poor. Um, so, you know, we had to make do. So that also had a large impact on, you know, our independence, our culture, our religion, and even with, you know, the folk magic and folk, uh, folk medical practices. Mm. Yeah, and it just seems like it's a good, that little section there is a great, you know, just kind of blueprint to how to live a, uh, a powerful life. And um, so I think you really wrote something very powerful in the book there. And uh, that section definitely spoke to me. And it's important, you know, a person should read that and ponder. Well, along with that, how about, let's talk briefly about the home and making that sacred because i think a good place for people to start you know after they go to amazon or your website and they order the book you know backwoods witchcraft (laughs) while they're listening order the book it's important you know um it seems like a great place to start is the home and making that sacred and I think a great way to bring some sacredness, let's say some honest life. I like that, you know, to live honestly. Um, a way to start bringing sacredness into life is to bring it into the home. And altars seem very important. I mean, around our house, altars spring up all the dang time for almost anything. <laughs> you know, yeah. like you really can't have enough altars. So um, can I ask, what is the importance of of altars in the home. Do you have a bunch of altars in your home? I mean, they're, they're these, these sacred places that we just, you walk by and you go, Oh, sacred. Um, well, not as I've ever experienced them. Um, and not in the, the particular sense of, you know, modern or modern altars. Um, physically, you know, certain altars were, made for the ancestors, whether it was, you know, deceased relatives, deceased friends, and whether that was placed on the entertainment center or on a bookshelf or on a table somewhere. Um, it, it, was, it was simply a, a place of remembrance. Um, but the, the biggest altar in, you know, Appalachian homes is essentially the living room because that, that, that also has always been a part of our culture is – you know, communing with the family, because especially, you know, way back in the day, there was, you know, essentially nothing else to do after, you know, the day's work was done. Um, And you had to figure out how to get along with all these other people, because, I mean, you're stuck here. You ain't got no choice. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So, yeah, there's, there isn't really altars, you know, in the modern sense, as, as I explained in the book. Um but, you know, people who, you know, did this work or, you know, they were a folk healer or, you know, they were a conjure person, they would have their, their own little, you know, working space, whether that was simply a few mason jars filled with herbs and different things or 
a couple of dolls here and there. Um, there wasn't a lot of, you know, shrines, essentially, like in a Catholic household or anything like that. Um, especially with, because Catholicism has already always been looked upon suspiciously in Appalachia as, you know, I always grew up, you know, being taught that Catholics were idolaters and all sorts of things. But at the same time, a lot of people here, you know, still honor the Blessed Mother, you know, in the form of Our Lady of Guadalupe or St. Jude. And to this day, those are the only candles, like, you know, the, the, shit, what are they called? Glass vigil candles, I think they're called. Oh, yeah, um, yeah. Those are the only ones that you'll essentially find here, like in a Walmart or a Dollar General. And those are usually the, the first type of candles to, you know, be sold out. Um, even though the, the Catholic population is very low, both of those saints are patrons of the poor. And, you know, uh, the organic, animistic nature of Appalachian Christianity, as I explained many times in the book, uh, gives some leeway into, into that factor. Um, so it's essentially, because Mama always explained it to me, because Mama always had a, an affinity for Our Lady of Guadalupe, even though we were all, you know, born and raised uh, free will Baptist. Um, she'd always say the one person that Jesus ever listened to was his mama. So if you want something to get done, you talk to his mama. <laughs> I like it. Um, I God, lost my train of thought. Oh, altars and, and, and how the... Oh, altars, yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, there wasn't, you know, anything big or elaborate, uh, like you see in, uh, Appalachian folk magic's cousin tradition of, you know, deep Southern hoodoo or even the, you know, altars and shrines of the, uh, Mexican cur uh, curanderos. Um, because the only way that I can describe it is the, the land itself kind of becomes an altar, because not only is it your home and it gives you your livelihood in the form of food or rest or sustenance, um, but it is also the place that you sleep and pray, um, if that makes any lick of sense. Oh, it completely does. Because, I mean, really, it's just expanding the altar. Like, we tend to uh, have an altar. Well, I, I guess altars right now can be very contrived. I mean, you yeah. know, especially since nothing's wrong with being new agey at all. But you, you look at it and many people have a big, they have an altar and they have a big crystal and like a picture of a, you know, a geometric deer behind it and <laughs> whatever, you know. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and they uh, like to sit See, next to I don't to really it. think that altars really made uh, much of an impact or development in Appalachian folk magic. Uh, again, simply because of you know our spirituality and our culture, um, because there wasn't really a, a reason to set up a you know a shrine or anything like that. Even you know ancestral shrines, they usually just consisted of a candle, a Bible, and some pictures of your ancestors, with the occasional you know glass of water, especially on you know dates like anniversaries, birthdays, um, or you know the. Uh, Memorial Day or Decoration Day in May. Um, but all, all, 
you know, full on altars, you know, with a, tons of candles and tons of images and things like that to use as a focal point. Um, I don't think really had anywhere to, you know, take root in Appalachia because it was all already filled with the um, independent spiritual belief that, you know, God goes with you wherever you go. There is, there's no point in, you know, setting up a table um, for a spirit when, you know, the spirit goes wherever you go or wherever you call it to. Um, I mean, I've worked on tree stumps, bells of hay when I needed to, um, you know, other people's kitchen counters, wherever it may be. Because um, the spirit follows you and it, you know, essentially knows what you need. And, you know, so there was, there wasn't really a, a need for a stationary, um, focal point to make or establish or work that connection. No, I get it. I get what you're saying. And it reminds me of the, the, the one section you had just called honest work. And if you're living that honest work, that honest life, then there's an old European saying called uh, the hand is with them. You know, just just meaning that you know that that person who has that inspiration is living that that honest life. You know, the the, the hand is with them; it just kind of helps them. You know, and uh, so I guess if you live in the honest life, the hands with you anyway. So you know, everywhere is the altar, and I like how you mentioned the living room was an altar. I mean, that's actually something that is great to ponder. Because it's true. I mean, I, I like how the altar just becomes less centralized and more expansive. Uh, yeah, why why wouldn't the uh, living room be an altar? I think that's that that's great. I mean, you know, where is your altar? Oh, it's my living the living room. You know that that's remarkable. Um, and it reminds me of a book. Some of the things that we've been talking about remind me of a book. Maybe you've may have come across it or heard of it. I have to admit, I never read the whole thing. I got about a quarter of the way through and I haven't finished it. But it's called Hillbilly Elegy. Hillbilly Elegy. It's called, it, it's, it's weird. It's Hillbilly, then Elegy. It's, it's a weird spelling. Mm-hmm. And it's called A Mem- Memoir of a Family and Culture in Crisis. And uh, it's by a guy, um, Jack, uh, J.D. Vance. And he grew up in the Rust Belt city of Middleton, Ohio, in the Appalachian town of. Oh, he grew up in the Rust Belt city of Middleton, Ohio, and the Appalachian town of Jackson, Kentucky. And really, it it he talks a lot about how um, just like like the low expectations of the people, how they feel stuck there, you know. And you've mentioned that a time or two. And I just wonder, where do you think that that comes from? Uh, well, I've I've heard of his book, but I ha- unfortunately haven't read it yet. Um, Me either. I'm I'm still working on it. <laughs> Just a few pages. <laughs> that um, feeling of stuckness. Where does that come from? That I'm I'm not exactly sure. Um, a, a lot of people, you know, they they hate the way things are here, the way the economy is, and all sorts of things like that. But at the same time, you know. It's like your heart and soul itself is rooted in the land because everything you've ever known is here. All of your family's here. The bones of your ancestors are here. Um, so it becomes like this sense of like the only way of life. And you just have to make do with what you're given. 
Um, so a lot of people simply grow content with that. Um, just like, uh, cause I used to do, uh, travel for work. I would travel and, uh, set up retail, uh, like retail stores. I would go in and set up like the aisles and the shelves and things like that. Um, and the few times that I went to California, it was such a, a strange place. Um, and of course, everywhere I went, I was always asked, you got an accent. And I'm like, no, you did. You're the one that's talking weird. Um, and to me, it just didn't, I don't know, all of everywhere else that I've been aside from, you know, home or, you know, the, the local areas like Virginia, North Carolina, um, or, you know, Kentucky, uh, everywhere else out West just has this weird, strange feeling that for, you know, me as growing up in the mountains and stuff, just, uh, I don't know how to explain it. It just, it feels nice. Like I loved California. I loved it, but I didn't like the people. I didn't like the culture. I didn't like the traffic. Um, it, it just, it just wasn't for me. And it was just so strange and foreign, um, that the entire time that I was gone, I was continuously reminded of why, why I loved my home. But then every time I would come back, I would be reminded of why I hated my home. So it's kind of like a double edged sword, basically, if you're, you know, able to get out of these hills. Um, but then you find yourself back. I get it because a place can be beautiful and powerful, but it's but not, also, you know, trapping and yeah, like I say in the book, it'll it'll sometimes lead you to madness. That's the thing. It, everything is a double edged sword when it, along those lines because, like, here where I'm at in Scottsdale, Arizona, yeah, you know, it wasn't that many years ago before. It, I should say it wasn't that many years ago when the place was a road. And lots of saguaro cactuses, and that was about it, you know. Yeah. And uh, there's still towns like that in Arizona. You can go up north a little ways or down south. You can go, and, you know, if you were a person, let's say, that you, like, really love desert and you don't like people, well, there's places you can live in Arizona where you'll get a shit ton of all that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you'll get all the desert you want and as few people as you can imagine. Um and uh, well, I lost my train of thought there. I guess we're both doing it. It's Mercury retrograde, you know. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh! And so oh, this is just a daily thing for me. Oh gosh! <laughs> I, I'm, yeah, I'm usually not this bad. So I'm a little bit exaggerated. But wherever I was going with all that, um, you know, regular regular listeners will will laugh. <laughs> but yeah, a place. So a place where I mean. Uh, well, anyway, I'm just gonna. I'll probably have to edit that out. I really screwed that one up. <laughs> but it's not live. <laughs> I'll go. I'll be the one thing I kind of remove. We were talking about place, yes, and um, and the double-edged sword. The double-edged sword. Okay, that's it. Yeah, perfectly. So maybe I'll just leave that in there. It's kind of fun. Well, so the thing is, out here in Arizona, you got many of these little mountain towns. I shouldn't say mountain towns, but I guess you do up north. But um. In the desert, you've got towns, you've got little dwellings, you have different sized communities. And really, if a person wanted just desert 
or as you go north, it gets a little bit, you know, cooler. Uh, if you wanted a small town with a little road through it, you can get it. It's here. Um, and many people, I imagine, especially when they were young, they, they would lose their minds. They'd be like, oh, my God, I hate it. You know, I want a Trader Joe's or something. I want, you know, I, I would like some, some, you know, to be able to, uh, to kind of live in the world, but I live here and I'm stuck here. There's just a road. That's my, you know, community. <laughs> There's a road that goes yeah. through it. That's it, you know, and the speed limit is 35 miles an hour, you know, and I can see that frustration. But also there's a beauty of that silence, of that place. You can spend time there. You can get to know that environment. You can get to know the, that, that nature there. Um, because I look at, like, say, where I live now in Scottsdale, it used to just be a road through a little town. And now it's exploded and it's grown. And I, it's funny, but I kind of, even though I haven't lived, lived that long, I mourn the loss you know what I mean? It's like it, it, it's great yeah. that it's grown, but at the same time, something has died. You know, yeah. it's it's it, it's a shame. So I, I get what you're saying. It's quite that double-edged sword because you're there and you're bored. Nothing is there. You feel trapped, but you leave. And then you, you realize, wow, I kind of lived in paradise. Just that paradise is boring. <laughs> yeah. But if paradise becomes exciting, well, then it dies. It's not... It, you know what I mean? It's it's funny. I see it a lot. I see it a lot. You know, everybody investing in real estate might really like it because the town is being built up and they're going to make money. But at the same time, the soul of the area, the land dies. Yeah. And not only that, but, you know, other things are lost, whether it's, you know, a particular tree or, you know, even people being displaced. People being displaced. Yeah, like through gentrification. Yeah, they are. That's happening just about everywhere here. A bunch of, you know, like tourists who just come here and they just want to stay. But then they they make so much money and then they have to, then the city starts bringing in more expensive housing. And then uh, either they want to live in the city or they also want to live in the country. And then us poor people are kind of like pushed in the middle. So, like, uh, not many places here anymore to, you know, live in the country. It's usually big, um, many mansions, basically. But then if you want to live in town, the rent is expensive, you know, going on $800, $900 a month. Like, I literally, like, right now I'm literally living in the cheapest uh, place that can still be found in all of East Tennessee, basically. That's something. Yeah, it's it's a tough one. You know, uh, you know, I, I do. I, I see many you know things that have value that I kind of you know mourn their loss. Like like you're speaking of where you're living, you know, and it it to me, there's always this aspect of disharmony with people. You know. It would be nice if people came and they, they, they said, oh, it's nice, and they liked it, but somehow they connected to the land and they found it sacred, and they went, well, I'll, I'll build a house here. Oh, but no, i got to carve up the side of a mountain and put this big thing on it. And you start thinking, why would you have to tear up so much land, you know, so much environment? Because the deer and the antelope and, well, not antelope on hills, but the deer and the elk... <laughs> And such, yeah. you know, the animals needed that, and you just totally disturb the environment, you know. So, you know, I guess I know I can't control the world, but I guess I am quite the 
environmentalist on some aspects. I really think we need vast expanses that don't even have ATV roads through them. If you can't walk through it, you can't go because that, that's how exactly. to land. It ain't for you. It's not for you, you know. It's like if your if your feet ain't made for it, you ain't supposed to walk there. <laughs> they're exactly like you have to earn it. You know, nature. It's like sure you can drive in a little ways, but then you got to park. And there are the trails the animals make, and you can follow those. Follow the game trails. You can, you know, we we do have public land in this country, thankfully, and we have a lot of it in Arizona here and Nevada. And there's a lot in the Pacific Northwest and such. Well, in some parts of the Pacific Northwest, I mean, yeah. and New Mexico's got it. But even then, a lot of times you're 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 uh, leasing a, a, a permit from a forestry company, or you're on somebody's ranch. But at least there's some nature that is left that's undisturbed. Because I feel that's one of the important things about. Uh, here's a wild one that I'd I'd run by you. When I look around, you know, I see a lot of people are unhealthy. It's very easy to see. You look around. There's a lot of ill health out there. Yeah. And I've often wondered if it if an aspect of that and this is out there, but I'm out there, so you know, don't be alarmed. <laughs> <laughs> it's that could it be that our connection to the land just isn't good because, you know, we pave a lot of it, we got roads, you got rather than just have a beautiful, you know, uh, mountain there, you gotta have a little road up it and mansions carved into it. You know, it seems like if we disturb our land, if our land is not alive, if there's not enough vast expanses that are undisturbed, that can only dis- be disturbed by boots or preferably moccasins or something like that, um, does that make the people sick? You know what I mean? Like, like if the land is not alive, if a certain percent of the land is not truly alive, do the people start to lose energy, start to become ill? Exactly. I think they do. It's my belief. You know, and so a lot of Americans don't look so good because the land is getting too paved, too, you know, uh, mm-hmm. too developed there. So it's funny, like where you're at is boring, but at the same time, oh, it's also essential to like, you know, the the the, the very vitality of, of, of the humans that live on this continent, you know. Oh. Yeah. And especially in like cities, you know, as you said, where they're just paved over from top to bottom. Uh, people who, you know, live in the city and never leave, like in New York City, um, they're essentially just constantly floating above the earth. They're not touching the actual soil. They're always, you know, a foot or two above it, with the only thing between them being like a huge slab of concrete. Exactly. I mean, there's so many people who... You know, spiritually and quite literally disconnected from the earth. The concept of earthing comes to mind because if you've heard of that, I mean, it's very simple. I don't. I think the fact that we have a word for it shows that things are jacked up and not right. We should not. Exactly. We should, there should not be an earthing movement. Damn it! <laughs> um, right. So no kidding, really. You know. So, but earthing is this new trend where people are finding health and you know meditative bliss by walking barefoot on the planet. Um, it's this new thing that we just realized that that might have health benefits and there's documentaries about it <laughs> so anyway but oh yeah i've read those where there's like uh what is it antidepressant microbes in the soil or something like that yeah there's so much to among, it among mm-hmm. a bunch of other things 
Yeah, I think there's a new there's a new documentary out. It's just called Earthing, and uh, I got to admit I haven't watched it because I, I keep shaking my head. I'm like, do I need to watch this? This is crazy. <laughs> But I, but I want to, you know, and like the, on the cover, there's like a barefoot on grass, you know, like a human barefoot on grass. And yeah. it's just like, really? It's just to, to me, the fact that we need to actually have that documentary, that this is a trend that, wow, touching earth, touching nature will make you healthy. We just figured yeah, like this out. How long have we been disconnected? Yeah, <laughs> you know, exactly. You know, it's like, but I thought, the, I thought taking a vitamin every day would make, fix everything. <laughs> yeah. It's like, it's just like foreshadowing of within the next 30 years, they're going to figure out they can just hang a phone on the wall. Yeah, exactly. Oh, it's so hilarious. And <laughs> relearn house phones. Oh my gosh. Oh, I know. Well, you know, well, it's been, I don't want to keep it too long, but I want to. I want to ask you another thing or two. You know, uh, in in your one chapter, which I liked, it reminded me of kind of. It was kind of. Yeah, I liked it because it was kind of preppery. You know, not like like a prepper, but it was about gear. You know, your uh, you know folklore gear that is important to have your essentials. You know, um, one thing you mentioned was knives, and for me, I can't help it. I'm a blatant knife collector. You know, um, and what is the lore like what tell us the magic of knives that people maybe are not aware of that can make their little pocket knife a little bit more sacred and if they're not carrying a pocket knife you will after jake tells you how magical knives are (laughs) well um if, if you're a boy growing up in appalachia most likely you've been gifted a pocket knife at least 13, you know, more than 10 times for every birthday, holiday, Christmas, Thanksgiving by multiple other male relatives. Like I literally used to just have a box of old pocket knives that I just acquired over, you know, my childhood. Um, And here they're used for, you know, basically everything that a knife is used for, Um, as well as, you know, unscrewing things and different things like that. Um, or some people even, you know, use them as a toothpick, which I don't, re- don't recommend if you ain't never done it because you might cut yourself. <laughs> um, but knives in App- Appalachian folklore, um, their use has always, you know, well, their, their magical and medical use has always been based on their practical use, which is of cutting or severing. Um, so there's, uh, I believe I give the one weather charm of, uh, splitting a storm in half with, a with an old kitchen knife, um, you basically take the knife out and, you know, have the, have the, what part is it? It's like the, the cutting part of the blade pointed toward the storm and you drive the hilt or the handle of the knife down into the earth. And that's supposed to split the storm in two. And that I have actually seen work because, uh, I believe it was back in 2011, um, uh, it was the last time that a tornado came through here and it was actually coming down, uh, West market street. Um, and I lived right, uh, me and my family lived right off of West market street and it got so close to where we could hear the, the tornado ripping trees up. Like we could hear the roots being pulled up out of the ground, transformers, you know, exploding and all sorts of stuff. And then we, you know, took the knife out and, you know, put it in the ground that way. 
And I swear within about 10 minutes, it was all gone and it never hit us. And then that night we were, we was watching the news and apparently right before it hit our area, it, I can't remember if they said it split in two or it essentially just dissipated. Um, so I have, I have seen that one work, uh, you know, from firsthand experience. Um, but knives were also used to, you know, cut things up, whether it was, you know, putting, I actually put a, uh, a knife under my partner's side of the bed because they used to have, uh, night terrors almost every single night. So I took one of the kitchen knives and I put it under, under the bed there and they haven't had a nightmare since. Um, so the knife in that, you know, regard cuts up the nightmares or the bad dreams, kind of like a, a dream catcher catches them. The knife simply cuts them in half, um, and renders them powerless. And the same was done, uh, when a woman was giving birth, if the pain was too much, the knife essentially became the Appalachian epidural and it would, uh, cut the pain in half. Um, arrowheads were also used for that. Um, they would be a couple of arrowheads, usually three, uh, odd numbers are used a lot in Appalachian folk magic. Uh, they would be put into a pot of boiling water and they would be allowed to boil again for an odd number of minutes. And then the woman was, you know, given the, the water to drink and that was supposed to cut her pain in half. You know, the, uh, the boiling water having taken on the, the cutting and severing aspects of the arrowhead itself to also cut and sever the pain. Um, and that one I have seen work firsthand as well, not necessarily in a birthing process, but specific, uh, specifically with my mother who has, uh, she has fibromyalgia and I think about three discs slipped in her back, a pinched nerve. And she, um, at the time that we used to use it a lot, she had about two blood clots, one in her arm and one in her leg. So, and we'd never really had health insurance, so she didn't have any you know, like pain medication or anything like that. So, you know, that trick became the pain medicine. That is definitely magical. I dig it. I mean, and all this lore, I, I mean, I'm always astounded. You know, all of it has a history. It came from somewhere, you know, and that just makes me wonder, you know, putting three arrowheads or was it knives? It could be either way. And like boiling it for an odd number of minutes, that would cut the pain in half. And you think to yourself, there's something that rings true. It's like, you know, you know, it's true how it works. That's just magical. I don't know. Where did it come from? I don't know. You know, but there's it. It must have been really great in the creation of your book. Just the research to figure it out, and I'm sure it's taken years, it's taken most of your uh, your life so far, I'm, I'm sure it's been really a creation of this book, but what's, and we, we will wrap things up here, I don't want to keep you all night, you know, but, oh, you're good. but uh, what lore have you found? So let's say remedies, let's call them, or maybe, you know, uh, objects, you know, gear like a knife. Um, have you found that in researching really, you found interesting be it just it's it's properties or it's history like what are some of the things that you know that you've researched that really just blow you away um not much really simple because i grew up around it all okay so you know it was already familiar um 
the, there are some you know stories like old uh, ghost stories or uh, folk healing stories that really do blow uh, blow my mind. Um, like in the in the one book by Andrew Cavender, I think his name is. Hold on, um, it's the folk medicine in Southern Appalachia. Um, he talks uh, about a folk healer who used to live, who's, who used to live here uh, in Irwin, Tennessee, I believe, or maybe it was Unicoi. Um, I don't know. They're really close together. Uh, and she was a folk healer, and the way that she healed was very peculiar. Peculiar. I can't say that word. It was very interesting. Um, which I've I've only heard of a couple of times. But she would essentially become like a a mirror specifically for people who, who um, Anthony Cavender, that's his name, not Andrew, uh, for people who believe that they were, you know, possessed. By, you know, uh, she would have the person look into her eyes and essentially gaze into her face. And I, I talk about gazing in the book, too. Um and then the person would sometimes see her face darken into nothing but blackness. Sometimes they they would see her face melt, um, and all these other you know weird things that you know verge on the line of being a you know hallucination. <laughs> and then it would finish with either um, you know a voice or something like that saying exactly what the problem was or where it was coming from. Or the patient would see either the uh, witch that cursed them or the, the demons themselves that were you know, in the patient tormenting them. And then after that, they were essentially uh, you know, freed of uh, you know, that demon or that curse or whatever it was. And that book was um, uh, Folk Medicine of Southern Appalachia. Was that Anthony Cavender? Uh, yeah, let me go get it again. Yeah, it's been a couple years since I read it, so it's way back here in the bookshelf. <laughs> yeah, Folk Medicine in Southern Appalachia. Anthony Cavender. Gotcha. Wow. That, that's amazing. Great story. And, you know, there's definitely reality behind it. So... As we close things up, I'd, I'd ask, you do sessions with people. You, you, you do, you know, you, uh, what are your offerings? And I guess as we wrap things up, I would say, of course, you know, you're, there's show notes to everything we've talked about, books that we've mentioned. There's show notes to your, of course, we, we, we list your website, um, little Chicago Conjure 13. Anyway, it's all there. People can go to the website, or, you know, writingcreditors.com, and all your links are on there. Um, and, of course, you, you, you do services for people. And can you tell us about that? Um, yeah, I do uh, general uh, root work and conjure for people, whether it's uh, for uh, luck, money, um, court cases, things of that, that nature. I don't really deal in uh, love works or, you know, uh, love or relationship type of situations simply because in my experience, they they become too dramatic and they're just, I don't like them. Uh, 
<laughs> I like it. But yeah, I do. A, I do a lot of uh, things like that, and especially of. Um, now I, I'm I'm not a medical doctor. I ain't got no medical degrees, but if you know you're looking for you know like a herbal remedy or something like that, then I can suggest one to you. Um, but usually my services are offered in a spiritual sense, so that's you know whether it's spiritual cleansing. Um, or, you know, other spiritual services like doing readings. Um, I do do uh, playing card readings uh, based on, you know, like kind of like the uh, method that I give in Backwoods Witchcraft, the one that my mother taught me. Um, but I also do uh, bone readings, which is uh, basically telling fortunes with uh, possum and raccoon bones, uh, among a, a few other things. Oh, I dig it. I dig it. Well, and I also do um, mm-hmm. folk healing for free as well because I, I was I was always taught never to charge for folk healing. Um, I can uh, do folk healing for you know stopping a blood up in a or stopping the blood up in a wound, um, colic, toothache, headache, backache, general pains, um, and if you I think I have it listed on there of the, the general ones that I do for, uh, folk healing or whatnot. Gotcha. Yeah. And you, and usually and you all do. that's required is, you know, the person's, uh, you know, their full name and their location. And of course, you know, where the pain is or what the pain is. Yeah. That makes plenty of sense to me. Oh yeah. Well, it's been great talking to you. I mean, I, I would just recommend to everybody who's listening, you know, uh, get Backwoods Witchcraft and read it um, because it will enhance your experience of life. It will help you live a more honest life, a more honest work. I, I, I wish there was some way I could express that or translate it. I mean, I, I read that section from the book, so people have heard it, but I think the uh, it's a great one to highlight, a great one to ponder. You know, um, are you doing honest work? You know, so get backwards witchcraft. Uh, you know, make Jake lots of money, and uh, <laughs> I doubt that. <laughs> you know, live an honest, have honest work. And uh, as we uh, as we end this amazing interview, um, uh, I guess people can check the the show notes to see where they can get a hold of you. But you know, give us your contact. How can people get a hold of you who are listening to this who might like to uh, you know work with you? Um, usually people contact me simply via email at uh, littlechicagoconjure at yahoo.com. I did have a phone number that was linked through uh, Google Voice, but I'm still trying to work out some kinks with that because apparently it's also somebody else's phone number and they've been getting the you know text messages and stuff to that number. So I'm trying to still figure that one out. Um, but yeah, gen- generally through uh, email or you know, message me through the Little Chicago Conjure page on Facebook, or you can also find me on Instagram or Twitter if you prefer those methods. Gotcha. And we will uh, we'll link all that in the show notes so people can get a hold of you. You know, yeah, definitely. Uh, you know, Facebook Messenger or Twitter, or your your emails right there on your website. And so, yeah. Well, it's been great talking to you. 
you know, I, I think it created an amazing body of work there. I hope more books are coming in the future. And, you know, I'm glad to uh, get some exposure to this because, really, people live an honest life, damn it. <laughs> and, and carry a pocket knife and get Jake's book now. Do it now. Oh, thank you. <laughs> All right. Take care. It's been great talking to you. You as well. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Radiant Creators. Check out more content at RadiantCreators.com. If you like the show, give it a like. Share this. Comment. Keep the conversation going. You can also find us at AlternateCurrentRadio.com, where there's this show and a lot more.